Hey everyone and welcome to the Woofing Possum podcast, the canine podcast for you, the pooch parent and the dog daft. I'm your host Greg, I'm a dog trainer based up in the northeast of England and my company is called Great Paws. So, whether you're having a cuppa and snuggling with your dog, out walking your dog, training your dog or maybe in your caravan driving your dog somewhere, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us, so let's dive into the next episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Woofin Possum Podcast, where this week, following my ramblings around training methods in our last episode, I thought I'd dive into a little bit more detail around kind of the strategies and the methods of the applications in training that we use in force-free training to kind of try and bring those to life to you, so that if you see them in action or if you're learning them yourself, hopefully this will help you understand them just a little bit more. So, here we go. Hey everyone, so when it comes to training methods, I wanted to give you a bit of a run through uh, some of the examples that are given on the hierarchy of dogs' needs infographic that were in the show notes to that particular episode. And I want to try and kind of bring these to life a little bit for you, give you a few kind of examples, just so you can kind of piece together the different methods and how we may be able to use them to support obviously our pooches as they're learning. Now, when it comes to any of the methods that we talk about here, you may have seen them um, with your kind of current professional if you're working with them, if you're reading some force-free training books, or maybe following some of the great trainers who are online. Now, the first one I want to cover off is management, or what I call control and management. Now, with any behavior um, that we're working on when we're trying to promote the right behaviors and more than likely let's be honest try and reduce or remove the behaviors that we're not a big fan of we have to use control and management to help us before we start to do any of the inverted kind of quotes the the the, the training now the reason for this and, and the analogy that i try and use to describe this to clients is Think of kind of an old-fashioned set of scales. So you've kind of got that balance point in the middle. You've got two sides to the scales or even a seesaw. And obviously, if you put weight on one end, that end will go down and either end will come up in the air because there's no weight or or less resistance on it. So when it comes to dealing with um, kind of behaviors, particularly behaviors that we're trying to reduce and ultimately replace with behaviors that we like, think of that scale or that seesaw heavily weighted on one side which is all of that behavior that poochers learn to do that we're not a fan of. Now, before we start to add our own weight onto the opposite side of that scale to tip it into our favor with all the behaviors and skills that we do like, we have to try and limit how much extra weight pooch can put on their side. And this is where control and management comes in. Because if we don't, kind of protect that end from from getting more weight on it what's going to happen is we're going to be trying to learn new stuff pooch may still get the ability to practice the old stuff which means they're going to keep adding weight on their side as much as we're adding weight on our side and if experience has taught me anything the chances are they're going to add more weight to their side than we are to the other side and we'll kind of just be in this perpetual losing battle when we're trying to address some of the behaviors that we we ultimately want to try and limit now 
Control and management can take many forms and in some circumstances it can actually even replace the need for training. So sticking on that point, I want to give you an example, which is an example I actually use, which is letters coming through the letterbox in my front door. One of my dogs absolutely loves it. Anytime there's somebody at the door, whether it's the knock, the doorbell, he will have a little run up to the door, he will have a bark, and if anybody tries to put anything through the letterbox, he will willingly kind of help them along and try and take it off them as quickly as possible. Now, obviously, that's not a great situation, not only for the protection of my post, but obviously my, my fantastic post person who's uh, pushing those things through the letterbox, the last thing they want is a dog on the other side of that. So my control and management for this is really simple, and I've installed an external letterbox. Now, I've done this for a few reasons. One, it, it's a much cheaper alternative, being honest, because... For the 30, 40, 50 pounds, or how much you're going to go out and spend on a good quality, secure external mailbox, um, that has ultimately reduced the need for me to do any training at all. So, being a very lazy human, um, I haven't even had to go down a training route, and I'm just purely using control and management to address the situation and remove the risk. Now, there's a few other things I can do there. For example, I've actually sealed the letterbox shut. So nobody can accidentally post anything through should they not see the external letterbox. And I can restrict my dog's access to the front door by either the use of actual internal doors or baby gates, which is what I do. And that for me works perfectly. People will still say, but Greg, your dog still bark at the door when someone knocks. And honestly, um, <laughs> I don't know if I should admit this, but I honestly kind of don't mind. That's a behavior that, I, you know, that that's comfortable for me. Pooch does it. They're not in any kind of undue, undue stress during those times. It's just an alert bark that my dogs do. And we very quickly, we have a like a follow-up routine that we do where dog will bark. I acknowledge the bark. I ask them for some alternative behaviors, which they do. That might be going to their bed or doing a sit or something like that. And then I can go to the door and deal with whoever's there, you know, taking a, a delivery or a parcel or whatever it might be. Now that, like I said, that works for me. I like the fact that my dog will alert bark when someone's at the door, but it's not uncontrolled because we have done a little bit of training around kind of how we do this, this acknowledgement. So they do the alert bark. I acknowledge that we do something as an alternative behavior after the alert bark, and that allows me then to move through that situation. But the external letterbox, the ceiling of my normal letterbox, and that management with doors and baby gates, again, just makes the whole situation easier to manage and much much safer for ultimately my post person so that's where control and management can be a really good supportive method that we can go to to help us overcome certain situations however going back to my original analogy of kind of trying to protect ourselves from pooch doing the undesired behavior more and more control and management may take some other forms which a lot of the time, I'm not going to lie, guys, it can be slightly frustrating for us because it will usually involve some kind of disruption to our routine or to our house or our routes when we walk or things like that, which any kind of change of that nature generally for, for us humans can be a little bit of a challenge, which is why control and management is often one of the most overlooked kind of steps in the training process that for, for me that I come across because it requires that real thought, effort, and disruption to our lives, which 
honestly, we often don't want to do because we very much see the problem lying with the with the pooch and they're doing a behavior that we don't like. Therefore, we want the pooch to change. And honestly, the, the more we can do it as teamwork and we can do some changes as well as helping pooch learn some new kind of changes as well, that's the key for it. And that's why that control and management is such a powerful, powerful tool for us to use. So, for example, if you've got a dog that likes to jump at the window and bark out, out the window at things that pass by, then my usual advice is obviously, again, we have to try and limit that behavior where possible so we can start to work on some alternative behaviors that are much more pre- kind of preferential to us and also nice for the dog. So we may have blinds or curtains, for example, might be just a great, simple control and management tool there. Um, I'm a huge fan of that kind of frosted film that you can get for glass, um, which obviously blurs the outside world, but still still allows light to come into your kind of house. Um, Because again, blinds, curtains, that tends to be quite a dark experience. And in a nice summer's day, people don't really want to shut the light out. So those films can be a really simple solution to the situation. And a big thing to remember with a lot of control and management guys, it's usually short to medium term. Some of it may be long-term, but that's on a case-by-case basis, but generally short to medium-term is what we're looking at whilst we start to work on the other new behaviours that we ultimately want to replace the undesired behaviours with. Okay, guys, so that's kind of management control and management. That's a huge, huge part of training and something that can just make our lives so much easier once we adopt it and once we commit to it and we can actually really support Pooch with their learning through that control and management. The other big thing that we're a fan of in dog training is controlling the environment when we are learning. Now, uh, one of the kind of, uh, I'll call it the posh or the geeky phrase for this is antecedent modification. That's what you'll see it on, on the hierarchy of dog needs infographic. But when we're training, what we often want to do is set the environment up so we can learn properly and start to understand what things are playing into our dog's triggers and therefore we can start to manipulate and change those around through other training programs. So when we are looking at that modification, what we're often looking at is things like routine and the things that happen that may contribute towards that behaviour. Now again, this is a really difficult concept for a lot of us to get our heads around and, and the biggest reason being is usually our attention gets very focused on our dog at the point they start to do the behavior that we're not a big fan of. So if my dog is, for example, barking at the window, we'll go back to that example. If that's something my dog does, what I'm usually not very or overly tuned into is what happened in the 30 seconds, minute, five minutes prior to my dog barking that I may have missed. So one of the things we really do like to spend a lot of time on is really analyzing those situations so we can find that out the other big part of that antecedent modification again is particularly when we're starting our training journey is how we actually do it now i'm very fortunate i have a training venue which i often describe to clients as a bit like a sterile environment Um, their dog has will have very little to no history at that venue and therefore there's none of these kind of antecedents, these triggers in place that are going to effectively derail our training when we start. So what a venue like that allows us to do 
is practice and train and learn a lot of the new behaviors that we wish to work on without those triggers around and then we can slowly start to introduce them in an appropriate manner to help Pooch learn how to still do the new behavior even in the presence of those triggers. If you are however training in and around those triggers and those antecedents that's where it can get a little bit more difficult so make sure that you do spend some time working with your professional or analyzing them yourself so you can really understand what they are and a big thing with this guys again is remember you're trying to do this from the eyes of your dog it's very easy to do a lot of this analysis with our human head on and we will draft a huge list of potential things that we're working on and we might miss something incredibly obvious for our dog that is much less obvious to us. And the best advice I can give for these is predominantly think about the sounds and the smells as much as the sights. As humans, we're very visual. That's predominantly how we kind of process the world. However, that isn't the primary route for dogs. Yes, they will use their visual cues, but their sound, obviously their hearing is different to ours. And right on cue, there's one of my dogs at the door. I will be right back. Okay, folks, sorry about that. Uh, Good old delivery driver right on cue there. So yes, as mentioned, when we are talking about those antecedents, those triggers, again, try and think of them from every possible angle and every possible sense, rather than just obviously what we observe, just obviously being uh, being human and applying our logic brains to it. Now, beyond that antecedent modification, obviously one of the things that we always want to do, regardless of the behaviours and the new skills that we're trying to teach Pooch, is use what's often referred to as positive reinforcement based training and the idea is that we set the environment up so pooch can succeed and when they do succeed we want to mark and reward that behavior and those rewards can take many shapes many forms toys treats whatever it could be but just like us what we want to do is build that drive and that passion for pooch to do it again and again and again because they want to do it and they love the rewards they get when they do do it And that way that's going to be helping us promote a new default behavior as the kind of go-to behavior. So for example, you know, using that again, my dog's barking at the door. If I wanted that, that, that knock to trigger my pooch to go to their bed, what I'd be doing is training that so that every time pooch went to bed after hearing the door knock, that there was fantastic rewards there for them. And those rewards far supersede the reward that my dog is going to get from barking at the door. So beyond positive reinforcement as well, um, we can also look at our what often gets referred to as classical encounter conditioning. Now, in its kind of purest form, that is us ultimately building training and protocols and environments where we can start to change the emotion that our dog will have to a a trigger or to some stimulus in the environment now the idea is here is again using that door knock scenario so if the door knock equals um let's say it equals some kind of 
anxious stroke scared emotions in my dog and therefore that solicits the behavior of barking what i want to do is change my dog's emotional response to what that door knock is so again what i want to do is actually start to use those rewards and that positive training style so that we can start to change the behavior and our feeling towards that thing so for me, um, I'm not a huge fan of spiders, I'm not going to lie, and I don't quite have an emotional meltdown, but there's probably a few times when I've been startled by one and I perhaps have. However, if I was starting to work on, effectively kind of trying to get over that, that, that feeling, that emotion that I have around spiders, somebody might say, let's say, give me five pounds every time somebody shows me a spider. So they're 10 feet away, they have a spider in their hand, they show me the spider, and as long as I'm nice and calm and relaxed, I get £5. And we go through lots of repetition of that. And what will start to happen is rather than that seeing that spider kind of start to create the, the worry or the fear or the anxiety that I might have had previously, through lots of repetition, what's going to start to happen is I'm going to maybe start to get a little bit excited because I know that if I just stay nice and calm and relaxed, I'm actually going to get a fiver. So this is how we would start to kind of classic condition that feeling that I have towards that said thing. Now, there's lots of other things that we have to throw into that mixed distance and lots of other kind of variables that we have to control to ensure it's successful. But it's kind of raw as form. That's what we're looking to do. We want to change what is predominantly a negative emotional response to a new conditioned emotional response that is obviously in that kind of happy spectrum that when I see this thing, something happens that I actually really like rather than obviously that kind of worry, fear, nerves, whatever it might be creeping in and likely going to create uh, an emotional response from me that's going to be perceived by my human, my pooch parent as potentially a negative one. Along with that kind of um, classical counter-conditioning techniques, we can also use desensitization. And desensitization is where we are looking to, again, control the environment incredibly well, but so that we can be in the presence of things, but to a point where it's not actually triggering that excessive emotional response from me. So using that spider scenario again, I might be in a room, I know there's a spider, and it's in a, um, is it a terrarium they're called? Um, you know, a glass, a glass home that it sits in. And I know it can't get out and I can be in that room and I maybe can be in that room 20 metres away from it. And over time, I might start to actually get a little bit closer because, again, we're controlling the environment so I know there's nothing there to worry about. And then eventually we might actually have the, the spider out of its, its, um, its little home and that kind of thing. But the idea is that I'm in the presence of something, but nothing negative happens and I'm a good enough distance and the environment's controlled well enough where I can deal and process and go through those emotions in a nice slow pace and allow me to learn kind of different coping mechanisms. And I might pair this with some of that desensitized, uh, sorry, with some of that classical counter conditioning behavior as well. So that I'm kind of starting to now use multiple methods to, to work towards a new desired outcome. But again, that's just that very controlled exposure to the thing, to that trigger, to that stimulus for your dog, but in an environment in a way that's done so where it doesn't ultimately promote or solicit that emotional response from your dog. 
One of the other big ones that we'll use as well, guys, is it's known as the pre-Mac principle. And the the definition that's in the hierarchy of dog needs and for graphic is um, to increase, decrease, or redirect behavior. And it's to use a high probability, a preferred behavior, to reinforce a low probability behavior. Now, when I'm trying to explain this to clients, the easiest example that I kind of go to is when I was a kid, I'm a, well, I was born uh, in the 80s, so I'm kind of a child of the late 80s, 90s, and I used to play out with my friends in our local little street on an evening, and what, like all of us, what would usually happen would become a time in the evening after school when one of our parents or guardians would come out and shout our name, and that was our cue to go back home because it was either tea time or bedtime or bath time, whatever it might have been. But ultimately for me, it was the time when the fun with my friends stopped. And therefore, you know, that's the behavior I wanted to, to keep doing. I wanted to stay out. I wanted to be up a little bit longer. I want to play with my friends. And therefore running back home, if it is the end of that, and therefore, even though it was the desired behavior from my parents, not my preferred choice. It isn't the thing I really wanted to do. However, if in that example, my parents shouted me and I ran back home and I was expecting to go back inside because it was dinner time or bath time or bedtime or whatever it was. And instead what happened is I got given 50 pence and got told there's 50 pence and go and have another 10 minutes playing with your friends and then come back. That would not only blow my mind, but what it will start to do is change how I process, deal and react to those situations. So the next day, the exact same scenario, I'm out playing with my friends my parent or guardian comes out and shouts, kind of, Greg, time to come in. Would I be more likely to run back home based on the events of yesterday? Chances are, yeah, absolutely I would. Because if I ran back in on my second day, guess what? I got another 50 pence and got told to go and have another 10 more minutes play. Through repetition again, guys, very quickly, every time I hear that call from my parents, I'm going to run back get 50 pence and get extra 10 minutes of play. So I'm getting to still do the thing I really want to do, but I'm also getting a little bit of a bonus with that 50 pence. And that is ultimately kind of the concept of pre-mac principle. And it's one that we use a lot when we want to train things like recall, for example. Often the environment that's around for our dogs offers so much reinforcement and reward for them, it can be quite difficult for me to offer something that can compare. However, if I compare it with coming back to me, getting a little bit of a bonus, but then going back to doing the thing you would prefer to do anyway, again, through repetition and lots of successful training, that's actually just going to be the, the default response now because basically it's cake and eat it. It's best of both worlds. It's a fantastic training tool to use when we're trying to deal with behaviors that are going to be effectively less desirable for our dog to do, but ones that we ultimately would like them to do for whatever reason. So that's that pre-MAC principle for you. There's a few other elements on the hierarchy of dog's needs, guys, but I will let you read those at your leisure. But whenever we're looking to work with our dogs and we're going to use force-free training methods, these are the predominant and the most common ones that you're going to come across working with a professional or reading some great books or doing some work online with some fantastic force-free trainers. So don't forget that control and management Always think about that kind of antecedent modification, that environment that you're working in and what are the triggers and what are the things that are in there. And again, remember to think of those from not only your perspective, but from your dog's perspective as well. 
make sure that any training techniques and protocols that we're using are reinforcement based positive reinforcement based and remember the three amigos from a previous episode guys that's some great skills and techniques that we can use with our positive reinforcement based training remember about that differential reinforcement that classical and counter conditioning so that's changing our emotional response to uh, to the stimulus to the thing in question that may trigger certain behavior our desensitization and again that might be used with with some of the other aforementioned techniques and lastly that pre-mac principle as well and remember guys we, we don't always use these in isolation we may blend them we may combine them but the idea is it's this kind of toolkit this toolbox of skills and techniques or categories of skills and techniques that we can use to help support our dogs learning get them really working really thinking enjoying it and actually wanting to spend that time with us learning all of these fantastic skills and often more than not people pick up the phone to me it's to help them overcome some behaviors that we all kind of you know we're not a great fan of for whatever reason okay guys that's this episode all done kind of our training methods part two thank you so much for joining me i will see you again very soon for our next episode Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the Woofing Porsome podcast. As always, if you do want to get in touch, you can find us on social media. I'm at Great Pause NE, which is Great Pause NE for Northeast, on both Facebook and Instagram. You can also contact me via my website, which is greatpause.co.uk. And you can also consume some free online courses at greatpausegang.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you very much, folks, and we will see you soon for our next episode.